This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. This next short presentation which is titled CRISPR Interference as an Alternative to CRISPR-Cut in Human IPSC and their Differentiated Progeny, and is being presented by Dr. Pia Johansson from the Lund Stem Cell Center, Lund University, Sweden. We will have a question and answer session after this presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the question box which appears at the bottom of your screen, and I'll put them to Pia at the end. So now, Pia, over to you for the presentation. Okay, thank you very much for that introduction. So I am here today to talk to you about CRISPR-I as an alternative to CRISPR-Cut in human IPS and in the differentiated neural progeny. Uh, some of this work have been done by me or the Cell and Gene Therapy Corps here at Lund Stem Cell Center, and some of it has been done in collaboration uh, with other labs and the Cell and Gene Therapy Corps. So just to bring everyone on the same page, uh, CRISPR-I, of course, is the using the same technology as the normal CRISPR-Cut. Uh, we have the Cas9 that binds to a specific place in the in the DNA, but it no longer cuts the DNA because the two nucleosides have been mutated. This on its own, if you put it in the right position, is sometimes enough to inhibit, inhibit gene expression, but normally you add a repressive domain, such as a crab domain, to the uh, Cas9, and then that uh, inhibits gene expression. So the aim of the first study that made us start using CRISPR-I was actually to do loss function studies in IPS-derived uh, forebrain NPS, or neuroprogenitor cells. Here, we wanted to do uh, a crispr cut actually, and we did that in an all-in-one lentiviral system that had been used before in a different cell type and where they had gotten like 97% uh, editing efficiency. But we wanted to do it in this new cell type and uh, we wanted to add the virus in the middle of the differentiation. And we also wanted to analyze the cells in bulk. So we didn't want to go through the single clone stage. The benefits of bulk analysis uh, is that there is no need for clonal expansion or for sequencing, uh, but also we didn't actually want the clonal expansion because the idea is that when you uh, expand the cells, the IPS cells clonally, there is often a, a lot of genetic instability that happens that leads to a lot of variation, which sometimes can then be cause of the phenotype that you might see. So we wanted to avoid that by instead having a population of mixed clones uh, so that any genetic instability would actually be cancelled out. The same is, of course, when you're using a trans, uh, transgene inserted by a lentivirus, is that it can be inserted into different points in the genome, and that can be very disruptive. And if that happens, the population situation is also uh, leveling this out. If the transgene is inserted in a very specific place or a sort of unlucky place, it can also be quite heavily and quickly silenced. And then once again, if you use a multiclonal population, uh, you have a much higher likelihood of your transgene actually being expressed at the end of your experiment, because then you sort for the cells that are still expressing the transgene. And in some ways, bulk analysis is easier, but in some ways, maybe. So we use two different knockout strategies. And the first one is an all-in-one uh, vector that it 
quite commonly used. You have the guide RNA under U6 promoter. You have then Cas9 under uh, DFS promoter here. It's an antivirus, and we just added here to this uh, uh, this differentiation protocol that I talked about earlier. And then we faxed them to get the ones that were still green, and then we did sequencing to find out the editing efficiency. The other strategy was similar, but instead of using normal or control IPS, we used inducible Cas9 cells. Uh, these were actually ES cells. So they're uh, expressing Cas9 when you induce them with doxycycline. And then we added the guide RNA virus instead of day seven. And then we did the same thing with those. So I said before that in a previous experiment with a different cell type, I got 97% editing efficiency. We, on the other hand, we didn't get that any high editing efficiency at all. We actually got very low, around 50%. And that, of course, is too low to use for a bulk analysis. Um, and that made us realize that there are considerations when you want to use knockouts and you cannot do single cells. Uh, this, the knockout efficiency can be different from different cell types. There is also, of course, the virus tolerance. Different type of cells tolerate virus differently if they are adherent or not, and also if they're density dependent, because when you add lentivirus very often, the density decreases because of the cell death. Um, and then I think it's also very much locus dependent. So some sites, the Cas9 seem to cut less for some reason. So we decided to switch to CRISPR-I. So again, here is the general idea. You have a crab domain fused to the dead Cas9 and you guide it to, towards the start of the gene. We designed three different guide RNAs for each target gene just below the transcription start site. We use this all-in-one vector where we have the guide RNA under U6 promoter, and then we have the dead Cas9 fused with crab after the UPC promoter, and then we have actually T2A and the GFP. So we can visualize the cells with GFP. So to be a little bit safer this time, we actually added the all-in-one vector as IPS instead in the middle of differentiation. And then we let them recover and then we did the differentiation procedure. And then of course the first step is to look with QRT-PCR to see if we have any knockdown at the mRNA level. And what you can see here is that we have two things that are very efficient. The transduction efficiency is super high in the uh, IPS. We have almost 92% green cells, which is really great. This particular vector, uh, this particular plasmid makes a fantastic virus, I must say. So I recommend it to everyone. It's one of the best viruses we've, or antiviral uh, vectors we've made. But not only that, we also get a very efficient knockdown. As you can see here, we have uh, only like five or 10%, if that even, like left of the actual mRNA levels. And then when we differentiated them for 14 days, we can see that the transduction efficiency is still very high. So they weren't sorted here, they were just immediately, but we have basically the same percentage after 14 days. And you can see here over on the right that we have very efficient knockdown also after 14 days. And here we sorted the cells that were positive and then we did all analysis on the sorted cells. Um, so this shows that it is indeed very efficient. Now here, if you look here, we can see that there is a little bit down here of what looks to be remaining mRNA, but it turns out that that might just be um, background of the protocol, because when we looked at the activation mark using cut and run, so we looked at the H3K4 3-methylation mark, and here is the control, here you can see the blue peak, and when we use CRISPR-I, this activation mark is completely 
gone it has completely disappeared so that as to suggest that we have complete silencing which is you know then really an alternative to crispr knockout and this we've seen with another gene as well this is not really published yet so we have to call it something else but you can see here again is the activation mark in the control it's gone in the crispr eye we have a deposit of a repression mark after CRISPR-I, and here is the RNA-seq, and you can see that that is completely empty actually after the CRISPR-I. So this is the, how well it can actually work. So that's really nice. And here's just some other examples. It works particularly well with the zinc fingers. A lot of them, of course, are on the same, uh, on similar places in the genome, so and can be hard to target by other things, but here it works really, really well. So on the top, you have different genes, this is as IPS, and then we can see that it's very stable and very good uh, knockdown efficiency after the differentiation. We also did longer term differentiation, and this has been published as well. So this is back to seeing finger 558. We took the IPS and then we turned them into cerebral organoids instead. And we looked at them at uh, two and four months after the start of differentiation. So this is like you know five months basically after we did the first uh, added the virus. And here in the in the control cells, you can see that two and four months, this is merged a U map of the older populations from two and four months. And you can see here that we still have a reasonable amount of zinc finger 55 expression in these cells. But in the knockdown ones, this is also a merger of guide one and guide two, then we can see that there is almost uh, no zinc finger 558 expression showing that also in these cells, also in differentiated progeny, as well as you know, long term after we started this experiment, do we still have efficient knockdown? We also used another type of neural progeny, uh, this time induced neurons or ions. Um, they are not started from IPS, they're actually started from fibroblasts. But here, uh, this work was done by Carolina Fiesch and it's also published now. And we had both HD patients, Huntington's patients, and control patients. And then she made fibroblasts from the skin biopsies. And then we used the same vector as we've done before. And then she faxed them to take only the ones that are actually green. And then she converted the fibroblasts into ions and analyzed them after 28 days. And uh, what we could see here then was that we have pretty significant knockdown here as well. So this is the control cells from control patients, and these are the one from Huntington's patients. Here we can see that the knockdown is not as complete as in what with some of the other ones, but for this experiment that was definitely enough, and actually in some ways more wanted to not have a complete knockout because you don't want to get rid of all of the Huntington. Here we can also see that it affects the mutant Huntington, as there is very, very little left, of course, in the uh, HD patients. And this is in the fibroblast, and then we look at what it looks like when they're actually turned into neurons or induced neurons. So this is in the ions, and this is 28 days later. So may, once again, we're looking at maybe 40 days here, and you can see that some of the efficiency has disappeared, but it's still distinctly there after this pretty long and, and difficult process for the cells to go through. Um, and another one that we found, lots of other people have found as well, of course, with CRISPR-I efficiency is that it both guides and dose dependent at each individual locus or loci. And um, here you can see this is fibroblast, that's why the MOI is so high. But you can see that depending on which guide you choose and how much of it you put on the virus, you can actually get uh, a very different levels of knockdown. And this could be a benefit. You can actually 
tighter the amount that you want to have left. Maybe you don't want to get rid of it all. You want to have only 20% left and that you can get by uh, trying different guides and different levels of MOIs and then it keeps pretty stable as it is. Uh, so that could be a, a really great benefit for some genes. Uh, CRISPR-I can also be quite easily multiplexed using this particular system. Of course, we know that CRISPR-I can be multiplexed. There are CRISPR-I arrays, uh, but here we just wanted to see how efficiently we can knock it down. Can we actually make it almost complete here as well? And so I used the same Cas9 uh, and guide RNA all in one construct. And then we added another guide RNA towards another gene in another lengthy another antivirus and then we added them at the same time and sorted the double positive cells and here uh, we could now see that we have very efficient knockdown of both of these this is very new data uh, but this, both of them works really well and there is enough that dead cas9 in there to take care of both of these so that's really quite nice if you just want to add uh, another uh, gene to add down at the same time or a little bit later even if you want so you can also do it in steps first you do one and then you add another one and then you can knock that down a little bit later However, and this is sort of one of those things you have to, of course, just remember that it's all about levels. And um, we did this knockdown with uh, uh, frame 28 as well. And if you just look at the QRT-PCR here on the left, I mean, we see we only have 5% left and that looks like, oh, super good. But then when we looked a little bit at the actual level, so these are the CT values here, <clears throat> you can see that frame 28 still has a really, really high level. Uh, it maybe doesn't mean so much to everyone, but basically what this means is that there is still so much mRNA in here, uh, much higher than a lot of uh, mRNAs ever, ever have. Uh, so it's just to keep in mind that it's all about levels and you have to really investigate it maybe in a slightly different way as well, if it doesn't look like it's zero, if you have uh, a very abundant uh, mRNA. However, they went on with this and uh, they still saw very clear sample separation after CRISPR-I and there was also differentially regulated genes. So it might also be enough, but something to keep in mind that it's not automatically gone just because it looks good on the QRT-PCR. So altogether, uh, the benefits of CRISPR-I, according to me, us, is of course that there are no DNA breaks that can cause all sorts of problems within the cell. It activates repair mechanisms and yeah, all sorts of things can happen. So this we don't have here. It is sort of easier and in some ways safer to multiplex also because of the same reasons. Basically, you don't get major translocations. You don't have multiple double-stranded breaks. Um, and it's also easier to maybe do it in a serial fashion. You can also dose the knockdown depending on what you want, which is very nice. Um, you also have in some ways a faster readout because all you have to do is a QRT-PCR for your first results. It does, however, involve lentiviral vectors. So that means if you cannot work with those, if you don't want a stable integration into, into your cells, this can probably not be used for, for cell therapy, but it's a very good basic research tool. But yes, that is the limitation is that you have to use a lentiviral vector. Then, of course, the benefits of bulk again, one doesn't always need to glow clonal when you just have a knockout. Um, for specific edits, of course, you have to do that, but here it is better. You don't have to do it. You have a multi-clonal population that then cancels out some of the issues that comes with uh, single cell expansion. Um, so that's like the main, main message, really. I would just like to highlight the backbones and the plasmids that we have used. The main one that I've used is this one from Agin. Very, very good. I would recommend using that one. 
It also comes at the pyromycin version, which we haven't used, but it, I'm sure it's just as good. We are trying to make one that is now red, that is based on the same backbone. We also have um, lentiviral back backbones that is just for the guide RNA in different colors, and they are also available uh, as controlled plasmids with uh, non-targeting guide RNA that are not adjunct quite yet, but they hopefully will be, and otherwise they're available from us uh, by request. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. And uh, if you're interested in really designing one of these experiments, uh, we recently published this START protocol. And with that, I would like to thank you for your time. Uh, we are the Cell and Gene Therapy Corps. Here is a picture of us at our recent opening day, and we're at the Lund Stem Cell Center. Uh, a lot of this work has been done in collaboration with the Jakobson Lab and Molecular Neurogenetics here at Lund University. So a lot of thank you to them and uh, thank you to you. Well, thanks, Pierre. That was a, an excellent presentation. Super clear. Uh, we have a few questions from the audience. Uh, once again, if anyone else has a question, please feel free to uh, post it into the question box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, so, Pierre, the first question, what about off targets? Yes, that's actually a really good question. And off-targets, of course, CRISPR-I has off-targets as well, just as uh, any other CRISPR. Uh, the good thing here is that it's also quite easy in a way to, to get around that by using different guide RNAs. So this is actually one of the reasons why we always use two guides. So I always tell everyone to decide three guides, then you take the two that are the most um, most uh, like the most efficient ones and then you use those and you sort of do parallel experiments with that and you can look at the off targets like in either in two ways so one of them which we both did in this original paper where we started using this one is where you first do everything with one guide rna and then we found some very specific genes that were regulated then we did that again with the second guide rna and showed that everything was the same uh or you can just combine whatever phenotype you have or what, what you're looking for. So we did that with organoids and we looked at combine the guide RNAs as a sort of knockdown term. And then we just looked at everything that was regulated by both guide RNAs. So anything else we weren't interested in, only the things that were actually regulated by both. So this is actually quite an easy way to get around that. So you don't have to really, um, you don't really have to investigate what the off targets are. If you get the same phenotype, with both guide, uh, with both guides, then you you're home. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so the next question is from uh, Anthony Adamson, uh, the uh, our earlier keynote pre pre presentation. Uh, he says, "Great talk, Pierre. Uh, would you ever consider knocking the dead Cas9 into a predetermined locus to be more consistent than lentivirus?" Uh, thank you. Um, no, <laughs> no. Of course we could. I think it takes away a little bit of this idea that you have the multi-clonality. So if you do that, I still think you would then have to do clonal expansion. You have to select. What I also find is that people have a lot of different cell lines. So um, they come to us and they want to do things in their own IPS, in this specific one. So I actually think, I mean, of course you can do it, but I think this one works most of the time really well and it's actually easier this way. Uh, especially because it's then easily transferable and it doesn't involve any type of clonal expansion. 
Okay, thank you. Um, uh, the next question uh, from uh, Kustav, who says, is it possible to use CRISPR-I mediated transcriptional silencing in certain genes associated with cancer stem cells? Uh, I would imagine so. Um, theoretically, it's, it's uh, possible to use it for any genes. Of course, if they are somehow vital for proliferation or survival, you might get a selection that way, but then you can use uh, a sort of titering so you can get an effect, but you don't completely knock it out. Depends a little bit on, on the, the locus, of course, and some of them we get much less knockdown than others, but uh, I haven't had one yet where I have not at all uh, gotten any knockdown. Okay, super, thank you. And I think uh, one more question, Pierre, uh, a short one. What about other cell types? Yes, so here I think it is, you have to really try it first. Uh, as I said before, it was a really, really, it's a really, really good virus. Um, somebody tried to use it in uh, mouse microglia and they got nothing absolutely nothing there was no expression of the lentivirus at all so if you get the lentivirus to work there should be no problem but i think uh, here one has to really make sure that it works in your in your system because it can depend on i suppose the species as well as the cell type um and then maybe one has to look into different promoters and so on one can always sub like clone it of course but um that's the, the main thing is that you have to look into it a little bit. And then, you know, knockdown is different in different cell types, but that you can also quite easily check, of course. Right, thank you. Uh, so that brings us to the end of, of this presentation. Thanks again, Pierre. Uh, fascinating talk, uh, very clear, great discussion. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, Please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 